Fantastic Radio, uncovering the truth, exploring the unknown. Good evening, curious minds out there across the internet, and thank you so much for joining me for episode 7 of the Clandestine Radio Podcast, What Really Happened in OKC. And while I can't uh, definitively tell you that I have the answer to that question, I am going to present you with a whole lot of evidence, a lot of it that you probably haven't heard before, and there is 23 pages of handwritten college rule notebook paper and I have very small handwriting for the record so we have a lot to get through tonight. I'm gonna do my best, my very very best to try and make this uh, not monotonous and and somewhat entertaining whenever possible Um, but just know as I was writing this I was continuing to research the entire time Uh, this is the culmination of about a week and a half almost two weeks worth of work and every time I thought I had gotten all the strings pulled I would find another one and so I would trace that one and it would lead me to more and so there are parts of this that might seem somewhat out of order but I feel like I kind of uh, by the end of it tied everything together in as neat of a bow as I possibly could. So just bear that in mind as we go through all of this. Um, There's probably going to be points where you you think that I haven't uh, really covered what I was going into, but it it will come back around. There's a lot of points that kind of wrap in and out of each other throughout this because, again, it, it was just so much information. I thought I knew, or at least had a very good idea of what had happened but I had no idea just how far reaching all of this was and and what the implications truly were or how many people in high positions were most likely in some way involved with it. The aims of what occurred were pretty clear and we'll get into that shortly but what you were told on that date and I, rem- I actually vividly remember this. I was only about 14 at the time, barely. Um, but it, it stood out to me as being just illogical to believe that what they told us was how this actually happened. It just didn't seem plausible. And there were a lot of inconsistencies, if you'll recall, in the story. Uh, John Doe number two, which is only one of several suspects that were reported to have been involved in around this and spotted or even uh, recorded that just seemed to disappear completely. I think I may have found what happened to at least some of these people and boy do I have a tale to tell today. So with all that out of the way thank you again for joining me and let's see if we can get to the bottom of what really happened. So in order to properly tell this story A very strange and winding one, with far more parallels to 9-11 than most realize. We have to go back slightly before and quickly discuss another strange tale. I won't have time to truly give this first story the coverage that it really deserves, 
to gloss over it completely and not mention the connections would do a disservice to the story I'm about to tell you. While I have to greatly simplify and summarize this part, if you're interested in hearing the full story of what happened, then use the Q&A or reach out on Facebook or any of our other social medias or shoot me an email and I'll be happy to cover that in more detail. In short, on February 28, 1993, Mount Carmel Center in McLennan County, Texas, 13 miles outside of Waco, some 80 agents from the ATF arrived in hopes of executing a surprise daylight raid in the Branch Davidians compound to serve search warrants of the compound and they supposedly suspected of having a stockpile of illegal weapons and to serve an arrest warrant for their leader, one Vernon Wayne Howell, or as you may better know him as, David Koresh. An extremely complex and confusing 33-year-old man who virtually impossible to paint with a broad stroke. To some he was a messiah, to some a prophet, and some a highly charismatic orator, and to others a lunatic and a pedophile. In truth, he was many of those things. He might have been all of them. And he was about to be at the center of a conflict and scandal that would rock the country and ultimately lead to the greatest gunfight on U.S. soil since the Civil War. There are so many conflicting narratives about the way things unfolded this day that many questions still remain. What we do know beyond question is that once the dust and smoke settled on April 19th, some 51 days later, four ATF agents and 82 Branch Davidians, including 28 children and two pregnant women, would be dead, and the Mount Carmel Center would be burned to the ground. Many people would turn out during those 51 days to witness the events unfolding live. One of those people was Timothy McVeigh, who would later watch the final inferno erupt as millions of others did live on television. Exactly two years later to the day, on April 19, 1995, the alleged deadliest act of terrorism on U.S. soil, at least until 9-11, would occur with McVeigh caught up square in the middle of it. Before we begin to dig into the events of that day and what all led up to it, let's take a look at exactly who Timothy James McVeigh and his accomplices, well, one of them anyway, we will get into that later, Terry Lynn Nichols really were. Born on April 23, 1968 in Lockport, New York, McVeigh was the only son out of three children born to his Irish-American parents. It's said that he was a playful and outgoing child, but became somewhat withdrawn in his adolescence. McVeigh would become interested in computers in high school and allegedly even hacked into government computer systems using his Commodore 64. His senior year at Starpoint Central High, he was named Most Promising Computer Programmer. In May of 88, age 20, McVeigh enlisted in the U.S. Army and attended basic training and advanced individual training at the Infantry School of Fort Benning, Georgia. That's where he would meet one Terry Nichols, who was his platoon guide and was 13 years his senior. They would wind up being stationed together at Fort Riley in Junction City, Kansas, which is where they first met Michael Fortier. While Nichols would request and receive a hardship discharge in May of 1989, basically uh, his wife was needed his help caring for the children or she was cheating on him, I don't know, it's a bunch of convoluted stories about why he did that, but he ended up getting out. McVeigh would go on to serve in the Iraq War during Desert Storm. 
Despite gaining a reputation as a racist, he would receive several service rewards including the Bronze Star, NDS, and Kuwaiti Liberation Medals. After returning, he would withdraw, shortly after entering the selection program for special forces, citing he wasn't physically ready and would supposedly be honorably discharged in 1991. I say supposedly because the majority of everything I just told you comes from the Army, New York Times, and Washington Post. However, the research done by myself and other independent journalists baits quite a different picture of things, but we'll cross that bridge in a minute. For now, let's run through the official narrative a little bit more. After leaving the army, McVeigh would move in with Terry Nichols for the first time at his brother James's farm in Michigan. In 93, he would supposedly drive to Waco to show his support for what was going on and distributed pro-gun rights literature and bumper stickers. For the five months following the Waco siege, he would work at gun shows. It said he handed out cards with the name and address of Lon Harucci, an FBI sniper who shot and killed Randy Weaver's wife while she held their infant child, uh, another dark spot in the history of government overreach, Ruby Ridge. Some of you may be familiar with that one. After this, he is said to have lived briefly with Michael Fortier in Kingman, Arizona, and served as his best man in his wedding before parting ways over Fortier's drug use. In April of 93, he supposedly moved back in with Terry Nichols, which, if you're following closely, should start triggering some alarms regarding the official narrative. Uh, it goes back and forth a lot, and it's seriously convoluted just what they have out. Uh, where they would supposedly watch the Waco siege on TV, while Nichols and his brother began teaching him how to make explosives. The destruction of the Waco compound is what supposedly triggered McVeigh to take action. The disappearance of key evidence, such as the bullet-riddled front door, led him to suspect a cover-up, and furthermore, his anti-government views would increase. It said he began to sell ATF hats with bullet holes in them and produce videos and literature detailing the government's actions at Waco while beginning to experiment with making pipe bombs. Supposedly during this time, he wrote various friends' letters containing increasingly dangerous levels of anti-government sentiment. And this is when, at a lakeside campground near his old army post, he and Nichols constructed an ANFO, or Ammonium Nitrate and Fuel Explosive Device, mounted in the back of a rented rider truck. On April 19, 1995, McVeigh drove the truck to the front of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. At 9.02 a.m., a large explosion destroyed the north half of the building, a building which housed offices for Social Security Housing and Urban Development, U.S. Secret Service, the DEA, and the ATF, as well as a daycare. Now, I just want to stop real quick and maybe just mention the parallels with Building 7 and what offices were housed in the building that was destroyed. This explosion killed 168 people, including 19 children in the daycare, injuring 684 others. McVeigh would later state that he was unaware of the daycare and would have chose a different target had he knew, while Nichols said they did know and they didn't care. Shortly after the bombing, McVeigh would be pulled over in a car without tags by state trooper Charles Hanger, who stated he saw a bulge under McVeigh's jacket and he then admitted that he had a gun. He was arrested without incident for driving without plates and possessing an illegal firearm since McVeigh's concealed permit wasn't legal in Oklahoma after the FBI was quickly able to identify the rider truck from a VIN number they found on the rear axle that was found in the wreckage. 
They had workers from the rental agency assist with a sketch of the renter. Leah McGowan, a manager of the local Dreamland Motel, was the one stated as identifying the sketch as McVeigh, whom was already in custody at this time. On August 10, 1995, McVeigh was indicted on 11 federal counts. On June 2, 1997, he was found guilty of them all. Despite 168 people being killed, charges were only brought for the eight federal agents who were on duty that day. On June 13, the jury recommended the death penalty. The sentence would be delayed, however, pending an appeal, which was denied on March 8th of 1999. Nichols would be charged on a separate trial, but both would be housed at USP Florence Admax on Bombers Row, the same place that Ted Kaczynski the Unabomber was housed. McVeigh would be transferred to death row in Indiana later that year. While his date of execution was set for May 16th, Six days before that date, the FBI would turn over thousands of documents of evidence it previously withheld to his attorneys. As a result, his execution was stayed for one month, but reset to June 11th when he was executed by lethal injection at 7.14 a.m. Terry Nichols was sentenced to life in prison and is incarcerated at ADX Florence to this day. At Nichols' trial, it would come to light that several others were involved, though the FBI denies this. Multiple people, including a retired Army NCO, testified seeing two Ryder trucks at the campground where the bombs were allegedly assembled. With the Army NCO stating he left after seeing a, quote, group of surly men looking at him aggressively. Even the operator of that Dreamland Motel testified there were two Ryder trucks parked at the motel. Multiple witnesses also claimed to see a second suspect, the FBI dubbed John Doe No. 2. But after conducting a, uh, quote, thorough search, they later said that he didn't exist. And that's just the official story, guys. However, a much more intricate and fascinating story starts to be told when you begin to really start digging into all of this. Much of what I'm about to share with you is built on the work of a handful of researchers who spent over 20 years working to expose the lies and uncover the truth of what the real story was. These aren't some crackpot conspiracy theorists either. Among the researchers are U.S. Air Force weapons expert, Oklahoma State representatives, FBI whistleblowers, government informants, attorneys, eyewitnesses, and veteran journalists who the official narrative just never sat quite right with. One part that has always stood out to me is the discrepancies in his military service. While officially he was selected to try out for Special Forces Green Berets, and left his security duty in Saudi Arabia post-war to return to Fort Bragg to try out, then felt unable and unprepared to complete the training and thus sent a voluntary statement of withdrawal to the CAP supervisors and officially left the military in 91. A letter he sent to his sister in 93 paints a very different picture. This is that letter word for word. Quote, Why would Tim, characteristically non-drinker, Super successful in the Army, private to sergeant in two years, Top Gun, Bronze Star, accepted into Special Forces, all of a sudden come home, party hard, and just like that announce he was not only disillusioned by Special Forces, but was in fact leaving the surface. He goes on to answer, quote, Now, here's what led to my current life. It all revolves around my arrival at Fort Bragg for Special Forces. 
We all took intelligent psychological aptness and a whole battery of other tests. Out of a group of 400, one day in formation, 10 social security numbers were called out, no names, and told to leave formation. Mine was one. The 10 of us were told that out of the select group of 400, we had scored highest on certain tests. We had been selected because of our intelligence, physical makeup, and physical abilities. We were made to feel special, part of a hand-picked group. We were all asked to quote, volunteer, talk about peer pressure, to do some quote, work for the government on the domestic as well as international front. What I learned next, both from the briefings and from the questions and private talks included, one, we would be helping the CIA fly drugs into the U.S. to fund many covert operations. And two, military, quote, consultants were to work hand-in-hand -hand with civilian police agencies to quiet anyone who was deemed a security risk. We would be government-paid assassins. And that comes directly from a New York Times article. And the way that they chose to address that uh, statements that he made was from them, quote, the government has always denied such activities. That's really all they had for it. So, the first question we have to ask at this point is whether or not such a claim is even possible. Does the military slash CIA engage in such undercover, off-records missions? I can state unequivocally, yes. Yes, they do. As far as drug running goes, one needs to look no further than what took place in the 70s and 80s in Panama, the Contras in Nicaragua during the 80s that led to the crack epidemic in LA, Mena, Arkansas scandal, which I may cover in more detail in the future, we'll just have to see about that one, Afghanistan, and so on and so on. Another possible source of verifying this account comes from Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty who is a USAF Colonel and Chief of Special Operations for the Joint Chiefs of Staff from 1955 to 1964 and was the liaison for procuring military supplies, equipment, and logistic support for CIA Special Ops worldwide. So a very prominent and high-ranking guy who makes this following statement. In his 1973 tell-all book, The Secret Team, that, uh, I guess kind of coined the term for the first time in the zeitgeist, sheep dipped, um, which is an intricate army devised process by which a man who is in the service as a full career soldier or officer goes on to go through all the legal and official motions of resigning from the service. Then rather than actually being released, his records are pulled from the personnel files and transferred to a special army intelligence file. Substitute, but nonetheless real appearing records are then processed and the man, quote, leaves the service. He is encouraged to write to his friends and give a cover reason why he got out. He changes his bank card, card services, and status to civilian, does the hundreds of other official and personal things that any man would do if he really had to be getting out of the service. Meanwhile, his real army records are kept in secrecy but not forgotten. And this tactic has been used countless times, for example during Project Heavy Green. With the US military participation in Vietnam restricted from deploying actual troops in Laos in the 60s by the 1962 Geneva Accords, 48 Air Force personnel were instead sheep-dipped and deployed in Laos as civilian employees of Lockheed to service a bombing radar installation that was there. And that's a matter of public record. I can pull the actual documentation for you and I may even post that somewhere. 
If this process was used for McVeigh, his resignation, paperwork, and personal life would all appear exactly as it should, as if he had actually discharged from the service. But perhaps it might explain how he allegedly popped up in August of 1993 in footage shot by Bill Bean, Camp Grafton, a National Guard training center that provided explosives and demolition training, while he was scouting locations for a short film. While filming at the center, a full one and a half years after McVeigh's supposed discharge, Bean had filmed an encounter with a man that he now firmly believes was McVeigh. The video can be found online and I may try to link to it from either the Discord or True Social page so you can judge for yourself. I'm not going to bother with putting it on Facebook. But the footage was analyzed by Professor Blomgren, PhD speech pathologist for the University of Utah, who concluded the voice forensics he undertook and proved an 86% match when compared to his interview with 60 Minutes. The interaction occurred when Bean saw two soldiers parking an armored vehicle. He asked if he could go and interview them and walked over entering through a rear porthole. The soldier who had been driving the vehicle was closing the hatch when he quote turned around he looked at me and froze. I had my video camera running at him and I said to him, what's your job? And he looked at me and said, what? I said, what's your job? He said, me? I'm nobody. I'm just a parts clerk. Others who would corroborate that McVeigh was in the military after 91 would be his accomplice Terry Nichols, who he also told he had been recruited to carry out undercover missions and fellow death row inmate David Paul Hammer who would go on to say the following on an Alex Jones TV interview. Ah, McVeigh told me and another inmate here that he was actually an agent working for a guy called The Major, and he met, allegedly met, this man when he reported for Special Forces training. He was told to wash out of his special training and was asked to accept what was called a Black Ops Operations and he would be working as an independent person and he would recruit people to be in his unit. According to McVeigh, this uh, association went on for several years from the end of 1993, uh, excuse me, 1992 throughout the date of the bombing of the Murrah building on April 19, 1995, end quote. After granting this interview, Hamill was placed on immediate lockdown, of course, and prevented from even contacting his attorneys. After receiving Nichols' sworn testimony that McVeigh was an undercover operative, attorney Jesse Trentadue was prevented from gaining access to depose Nichols by a federal judge. The judge in McVeigh's case also placed sensitive documents obtained by the defense during the discovery under seal, documents that the producer of the OK City bombing documentary, A Noble Lie, claims prove these connections, which is a very interesting documentary. I would highly suggest if you're curious to go seek that out. It's definitely worth a watch if this kind of stuff uh, interests you. And if what I'm going to tell you today piques your interest, that's another good source of some of this information. More about John Doe number two. At least 20 eyewitnesses and a few CCTV cameras saw two men in the rider truck. All of them described the second man as, quote, Middle Eastern looking, absolutely wasn't Terry Nichols. Twenty people filled out 302s, which are an investigative report, basically, that the police have to file on any time they talk to an eyewitness or something like that, and they take their statement. Of course, much like on 9-11 and the London tube bombings, the 12 known camera tapes were seized and withheld, 
all for reasons of, quote, national security. In 2011, through a FOIA request, the DOJ released a classified report detailing the May 26, 2005 interrogation of Terry Nichols. One thing that he said during this interview stood out to me, though it seemed to largely go unreported by most of the people in the press. The FBI report states, Nichols advised that John Doe 2's name had not been mentioned during the investigation and therefore he feared for his life and his family's well-being should it become public. A statement that would seemingly shatter the narrative that only two people were involved and had single-handedly pulled off the biggest domestic terrorist attack of the 20th century. Nichols clearly implied he knew the identity of John Doe number 2 when asserting that the conspirator's name had quote not been mentioned. It's important to bear in mind that he and his legal team had direct access to the sealed court files and classified discovery materials legally required to be disclosed to his defense team. So Nichols would have been informed about every suspect that surfaced on the FBI's radar. He further asserted that this John Doe II would pose a grave threat to him and his family should he publicly disclose their name. Safe to assume he did not trust authorities to investigate or arrest this person should he reveal their identity. He also repeated this revelation during the June 2005 prison cell interview with California Representative Dana Rohrabacher, while also offering that McVeigh had numerous liaisons with Middle Easterners. This is where our already convoluted story takes a few more turns, so buckle up. In 2011, a man named Hussein al-Husani was arrested in Quincy, Massachusetts on an assault charge. While Nichols had alleged that John Duke II had not been named, a man by that name had been considered a suspect at the time of the bombing. FBI spokesman Greg Komkowicz said that Hussein had been, quote, thoroughly investigated at the time and was found to not have any role whatsoever in the attack on the Murrah building. Though he admitted he had been seen with McVeigh before that date, the investigation was, quote, closed and the FBI has no further interest in that individual, end quote. There's reason to believe that Hussein al-Hassani was at one time in the Iraqi military and potentially crossed paths with McVeigh. That is the leading theory surrounding John Doe number two, anyway. There are others who think that he was a German national and Andreas Strassmeier, a neo-Nazi. The FBI would have you believe it was all just a mistake and he never existed, of course. Either way, there is more than enough random accounts and theories out there to sufficiently muddy the waters and lead anyone looking into it to just give up or go crazy. One thing is for sure. There is a very clear pattern of cover-ups by the authorities and limited media coverage after the crime took place. With everything we've discussed in mind, I want to go over just a couple of facts that have surfaced and I believe call into question the story we were told to believe. Number one, going back to attorney Jesse Trentadue, who you may recall uh, was blocked from disposing Nichols. He began investigating the case after his brother Kenny was killed in prison, apparently having been tortured to death by the FBI in its, quote, search for John Doe number two. Trent Doe's investigation led to a federal judge nearly finding the FBI in contempt of court for tampering with a key witness. Trent Doe now says, there's no doubt in my mind, and it's proven beyond any doubt, that the FBI knew that the bombing was going to take place months before it happened, and they didn't stop it. 
This would certainly track with the department's history of having mass shooters and other terrorists on the radar or even in steady contact with them before committing crimes and not making any moves whatsoever to prevent it, particularly when it would seem to serve an agenda. Number two, Judge Clark, bear with me on this name now, Wadoops, Wadoops, I don't know, who presided over the case brought by Jesse Trentadu, ruled in 2010 that CIA documents associated with the case must be held top secret. These documents apparently show that the CIA was involved in the OKC bombing investigation and the prosecution of McVeigh. This would seem to mean that foreign parties were involved since the CIA is, at least on paper, prohibited from interfering in strictly domestic cases. Number three, Andre Strassmeyer, that we mentioned uh, briefly just a moment ago, was allegedly close friends with McVeigh and they were both connected with a neo-Nazi organization located in Elohim City, Oklahoma. Not sure I said that right. It kind of looks like Elohim, but it's uh, E-L-O-H-I-M. Elohim. That's how we're going to say it. A retired U.S. intelligence officer claimed that Strassmeyer was, quote, working for the German government and the FBI. This guy is an interesting character side note here. Uh, I found a lot of differing opinions on his involvement and his level uh, as far as like working with various intelligence agencies and was he there just to infiltrate these neo-Nazi groups or was he in fact uh, a neo-Nazi? Did he commit any of the crimes that these groups did? Because there was bank robbings and all kinds of crazy stuff going on. Uh, that Elohim city or whatever is frequently referred to people around there as Alphabet City because it's... <laughs> they say that there's more feds in those groups than there are actual neo-Nazis, which with the things I've seen, I can easily believe that to be perfectly honest. But he is an interesting character, and he'll pop up another time, I'm pretty sure, but uh, who knows what the hell was going on up there. 4. Larry Potts The FBI supervisor responsible for the tragedies at Ruby Ridge in 1992 and Waco in 1993 was also given responsibility for investigating the OKC bombing. Terry Nichols claimed that McVeigh, who we discussed had allegedly been recruited as an undercover intelligence asset after leaving the army and all that, had been working under the supervision directly of Potts. 5. OKC Police Officer Terry Jeeke And this is uh, it's a rough one, and it's a very important piece of this puzzle, I believe. It's a standout, I'll say that much. He was among the first to respond in the wake of the bombing, and he was heralded as a hero for rescuing many of the victims. He was also an eyewitness to conversations and physical evidence, which he said convinced him that there was an orchestrated cover-up of details of the bombing by federal agents. Yiki, who was one of the good guys, and truly was a, a good guy by all accounts that I've seen, he became committed to getting to the truth about what really happened that day. Unfortunately, as we have seen many other times, he would never get that chance. Because a year later, he was found dead off the side of a rural road. His death was ruled, wait, can you guess it? Let's all say it together, a suicide, despite overwhelming evidence that he was murdered. Authorities reported that Yiki slit his own wrist and throat, then miraculously climbed over a barbed wire fence, walked over a mile, through a nearby field, 
and eventually shot himself in the side of his head at an unusual and difficult angle that's actually in the autopsy no weapon was found no investigation was ever initiated and no interviews whatsoever were conducted his family continues to fight for the truth about his death to this day and i wish them the best i hope that i read that in a way that you actually understood how incredibly jacked up that was uh, not to mention completely utterly and completely impossible that one when i when i found that information it, it kind of was like wow there definitely is something much deeper going on with all of this and if you thought that was wild let's talk about another um we'll call it interesting little coinky dink number six gene corley the engineer who was hired by the government to support his claims about the structural fire at the Branch Davidians complex in Waco was brought in to investigate the destruction of the Murrah building. Corley brought along three other engineers, Charles Thornton, T. Sozin, and Paul Mlacker. Their investigation was conducted from half a block away where they couldn't directly observe any of the damage, yet their conclusion supported the pre-existing official account perfectly imagine that now get this a few years later within 72 hours of the 9-11 attacks these exact same four men were on site leading the investigations at the world trade center and at the pentagon there are actually a staggering number of common threads that run through the stories of waco okc 9-11 and reach all the way to columbine and beyond as far as between OKC and 9-11, though, here's just a few. The alleged hijackers visited the OKC area several times and even stayed in the same motel that McVeigh and Nichols had apparently frequented. After both events, the videos from all of the cameras that fully captured the events just went missing and officials ignored or harassed witnesses and omitted evidence that didn't support the official narratives. In 2002, OKC resident Nick Burge was interrogated by the FBI for lending his laptop and internet password to the alleged 20th hijacker, Zacharias Musoe. Two years after this investigation, Burge became world famous as a victim of beheading in Iraq. Number 7. Virtually every witness, much like 9-11, reported the presence of multiple bombs and it was repeatedly mentioned in all the early reporting from that day. An unexploded bomb was even found attached to a gas line inside the building, and a FEMA memo reports that at least two additional bombs were found in the Murrah building. A witness to the crime and former military member with a military explosive experience background identified the additional bombs he saw removed from the building as being military in nature. General Benton K. Parton, USAF retired, stated in his OKC bombing report to Congress that, quote, the bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah building was not caused solely by the truck bomb. The major factor in its destruction appeared to have been detonation of explosives carefully placed at four critical junctures on supporting columns within the building. Doesn't that sound a little bit familiar to you guys? Oh, and there's more. 
And just so you know, um, like I said, after I wrote a lot of this stuff, I would discover something else that related and I just have to, you know, add it back in. So we're going to circle back on some of this stuff as we go along if I found any additional context or information about any of it. But number eight. In April 1995, the Omnibus Counterterrorism Bill was struggling to get through the U.S. Congress. After the bombing occurred, the tragedy seemed tailor-made to rally public support for that tyrannical bill. And I do go into more detail on all that here in just a moment. But first, number nine. The morning of the bombing, the ATF office inside was empty, which was unheard of at 9 a.m. on a weekday. Number 10. Oklahoma Congressman Ernest Isdook told a victim in a taped conversation in 1995 that the OKC bombing was, quote, a failed national security operation that used an FBI provocateur associated with a militia. Within hours of the bombing and before McVeigh was even arrested, the ATF was already putting out a story that the building was bombed, quote, because of Waco. The Murrah building also happened to be where the records from the Waco siege were being kept. Those are not all the records that were being kept there, but I found that interesting. Number 11. OKC bombing survivor Jane Cram tells of three very suspicious men she saw in the Murrah building garage the week prior to the bombing and was shocked by the FBI's obvious disinterest in the matter. Virgil Steele, an elevator operator inspector at the scene saw two additional bombs being removed from the building. Reports of additional bombs were confirmed by the OKC Fire Department as well. And that doesn't even really scratch the surface of the accounts that I was able to find about multiple bombs in the building. Um, I just tried to condense it and, and fit it in whenever I found it and you know only talk about the ones that I had some sort of record for and not just you know speculation or hearsay or anything like that so um, but if you go look you'll find tons of that stuff tons of it very much like 9-11 which number 12 again much like 9-11 20 miles away seismographs at the University of Oklahoma recorded not one but two explosive events just after 9 a.m. There's also another strange link between the two events, well, at least the 93 World Trade Center bombing, and also 9-11 too, but the materials for the 93 World Trade Center bombing had been purchased with the credit card of an FBI provocateur named Melvin Lattimore. And Melvin Lattimore was also seen by four witnesses inside and around McVeigh's car at the OKC Traveler's Aid office adjacent to the Murrah building just one day before the bombing. Six FBI agents allegedly spent nine months browbeating those four witnesses trying to make them change their story. Lattimore was also the roommate of the quote 20th hijacker, Karius Musui, while he attended the Airman Flight School in Norman, Oklahoma in 2000 and 2001. Lattimore was also supposedly the roommate of Al-Hazami and Al-Shihi in Norman, Oklahoma. Despite General Pardon informing A.G. Ashcroft in August of 2001 of the Traveler's Aid story in writing and in person, nothing was ever done by Ashcroft about Lattimore. As you're all aware, I don't claim to know the absolute truth about the subjects that I cover on here, uh, at least not always. 
I try to simply present evidence as best I can and debunk false narratives if the evidence doesn't support them. This is a case that has always bothered me. I was barely 14 when this event took place, but I vividly remember it. And it always stood out as not making sense to me and being full of contradictions. There's two more oddities, possibly more. <laughs> I discovered while digging into this case recently, and I didn't want to forget to mention them. While I was unable to pull the visitor's log, because I really wanted to, you know, have written proof to be able to post and, and to show you guys, you can find this information out if, if you search for it, but I wanted a single document to be able to prove this one, because the next thing that I'm about to tell you might just blow your mind. I have found several official accounts that while McVeigh was on death row in prison, he was visited and also under the care of none other than Dr. Lewis Joylon West. For those familiar with MKUltra or the Kennedy assassination and several other things, that name may ring a bell. A brief history though of Dr. West is he first came into the public eye in 1954 when at the age of 29 with zero previous past residency, fellowship, or tenure track appointment, he somehow became a full professor and chair of psychology at the University of Oklahoma College of Medicine. West specialized in brainwashing, torture, sleep deprivation, memory erasing, hypnosis, and other MKUltra-style mind control techniques. He served in the Air Force from 48 to 56 and was part of a panel to discover why 36 out of 59 airmen captured in the Korean War had confessed or cooperated with North Korean allegations of war crimes committed by the U.S. He would go on to complete his residency at Cornell University, an MKUltra institution where he would become a subcontractor for Project K-Ultra, Subproject 43. An odd standout in his record came in August of 1962 when he killed an elephant at the Lincoln Park Zoo in Oklahoma using LSD while trying to study a condition that the elephants were suffering from. Yes, that really happened. Go look it up. He would later pop up in Stanford, California, where he would lead a group of researchers studying the hippie culture in Haight-Ashbury, which is a whole other story that goes deep into CIA stuff. Uh, the Manson family, he had connections and contact with uh, Manson and beyond. More notably, he was a psychiatrist who was appointed to Jack Ruby after he killed Lee Harvey Oswald and pronounced him psychotic and delusional and suggested further interrogation under the influence of sodium theopental and hypnosis. Jack Ruby is an interesting story himself with a long and winding road we may touch on at a later date because he ties into a whole bunch of other things. Just know there is a ton of lies and conspiracy surrounding him, his actions, and his death. Dr. West was a man with deep connections to the CIA and MKUltra and pops up many times around MKUltra suspects. He would go on to commit various murders and tended to magically support the efforts of the CIA. He was also the psychiatrist that uh, was appointed to Sirhan Sirhan who shot RFK and would subsequently claim that he had zero memory of the event whatsoever. 
Um, that's a very interesting story in and of itself, and I would encourage everyone to go look into that a bit too. So, a lot of strange, deep CIA connections with this Dr. West guy. Very nefarious character. Uh, the accounts I've found about Dr. West working with McVeigh are all, in my opinion, quite reliable. And Dr. West even went on the Larry King show on the very day of the bombing to reinforce the narrative of McVeigh being a, you know, quote, lone nut guy, not part of any larger conspiracy. The final point I want to look at is possibly the most controversial, and that is the execution of McVeigh. Now, before I get into this, I have to say, I have no way to prove any of this stuff. Um, I don't even know that I believe any of this stuff, to be perfectly honest with you. I just found a lot of accounts and a lot of people saying stuff about it, so I felt I would be remiss if I didn't at least bring it up. So, several eyewitnesses were quoted as saying they saw no signs of actual death and that he was covered head to toe with a sheet. He apparently didn't want an autopsy, which is standard protocol in federal executions, but he actually fought super hard when he was on death row uh, not to have one. And he was quickly cremated with his ashes being given to his lawyers. Susan Carlson with WLSM Radio was quoted as saying she was one of the witnesses that actually witnessed the execution. Quote, in fact, it was hard to even tell when he had passed on because of his shallow breathing, or what appeared to be shallow breathing, continued even after they pronounced him dead and his eyes remained open the entire time. I don't think he even blinked. End quote. Which, uh, to me, sounds a lot like something along the lines of Donatol, uh, which is uh, it's a concoction of... Um, Oh, I'm going to get that one wrong. I know it's got atropine, scopolamine, uh, phenobarbital, hyoceamine, I think is what that other one is. Um, anyways, it, it's used to, uh, some of, one of those, the scopolamine you may have heard of is the, the zombie drug or whatever. Um, and the other ones just kind of help to cover up and your breathing and everything else and make someone have the appearance of being dead so with something along those lines faking a state of death would be highly possible and fairly convincing honestly after the execution prison officials admitted to using a decoy to quote throw off the public off the trail of mcveigh which i found to be a little weird um but okay there are several other strange anomalies in his death and what followed, but because much of this, like I said, is difficult to verify or to really examine for myself, I'm not going to get too bogged down in, the, in that particular element of this case. There's just, you know, so much other stuff. But like I said, I couldn't not bring it up because there are a lot of people that think that they just used him as a patsy and then... Uh, faked his death and that McVeigh could still be doing undercover ops for the government or dead somewhere else or God knows at this point. So moving on, in conclusion, while there are so many elements of this story and lots of pieces that are difficult to fully pin down or investigate much further this long after the events of April 95, I hope I have at least planted a few seeds regarding the who, how, whys this event actually took place and at least somewhat dispelled the notion that the official narrative of the events is to be trusted. 
McVeigh openly felt that he was a patsy completing a mission. He told police upon his arrest that, quote, I was never trying to escape capture. My arrest was all part of the mission. The bombing had to land squarely at the feet of someone involved in the anti-government movement. I left a paper trail that even a blind man could follow, end quote. He also told this to his fellow death row inmate Hammer, who would go on to write two books on the subject. Both are interesting reads. Uh, I've read parts of both of those books. I haven't really dug into them super deep, but he also told Hammer and at least one other person who interviewed him that he believed his execution would be fake. He went as far as to say that his handlers, uh, quote, had a drug that closely mimics death and that he would be revived. End quote. If in the end he was wrong, he certainly wouldn't be the first patsy to be thrown under the proverbial bus, nor would he be the last. There are a few things that we do know without question. A single truck bomb could never have the power to have done the amount of damage seen at the Murrah building. It just isn't possible. And there are so many, such an abundance of contradictions and blatant deceptions in the official story that one needs only a and cursory look to find. So was he a sheep dip patsy? According to a US Defense Department record obtained through FOIA, I can tell you that McVeigh held a DOD secret clearance that didn't expire until May 11, 1995. The FBI's PATCON plan was to infiltrate and discredit right-wing militia movements in the 90s, and a letter written by FBI Director Liz Free, also obtained through FOIA, contained several references to an undercover operator at Elohim City before the bombing. The letter contains multiple references to OK BOMB, written all in caps, OK BOMB, subject Timothy McVeigh, as well as BOMB ROB, B-O-M-B-R-O-B, all caps, subjects, make of that what you will. Several people who were either directly involved or got too close to the apparent truth of all this met with very suspicious ends and unrealistic suicides. The footage of McVeigh's truck in front of the Murrah building is also conveniently missing. The public was told that the four cameras in four separate locations that would have shown the entire event went blank at nearly the same time that morning. The FBI's excuse was that the cameras did not record just prior to the blast or during because they quote, had run out of tape, or the quote, tape was being replaced, end quote. However, they all suddenly began recording right after the 9.02 a.m. explosions. There are so many threads to this case that one could find and follow it would, it would honestly take years, maybe a lifetime, to really fully run down all of these leads and begin to fully understand every element of this story. I've done my best to present you guys with just some of these. I mean, particularly the ones that I've researched myself. If you are interested in this case, I would advise you to dig for yourself. However, I would highly recommend you be very safe in doing so and cover your tracks well, as the implications are far-reaching and connect back to a number of very powerful people. For instance, the Murrah building also held records related to and other documents that were proving to be problematic for the Clinton administration stemming from Bena, Arkansas.
which were conveniently destroyed, of course, in the bombing. I won't go into all of that right now, but if you know, you know. The Omnibus Counterterrorism Act of 1995 would fail when first introduced, but after the bombing, it would morph into the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, and was passed the following year with President Clinton specifically linking the bill to the bombing in his signing statement. Years later, it would be used as the core of what would become the Patriot Act. Ultimately, it all served to paint militias with a terrorist tinge brush to usher through draconian legislation that began the total erosion of civil liberties and first opened up the path to rampant domestic spying and warrantless wiretaps of citizens and helped to pave the way to the modern security state that we find ourselves in today. I'll let you decide for yourself how we got here and what really happened in this case. And also 9-11. All I can hope to do is make you question, which I truly hope I have, because a curious mind is a dangerous thing. Just ask that old cat. So I just want to say, I know that some of this information was probably difficult to follow at times, um, and the official narrative uh, alone was highly convoluted and difficult to follow. Trust me, I can relate. It was a, uh, a serious pain to try to write all of this and to research everything and to eliminate all of the BS and to just put into this episode the things that I truly felt I had confirmed. And that's why that at times it seemed like I was jumping around a little bit and certain points were made uh, at a later part in the, in the episode rather than when I was first talking about the point. And I also kind of wanted to uh, just lay some things out there and then build on them a little bit. So I hope that it didn't get too confusing to genuinely uh, follow and get the information that I hope that you got out of this episode. I will do a supplementary episode next week where I'll go into a little bit more detail on certain things. And if there's something that interest you and you feel like I didn't ever come back and finish it or you felt like it didn't get properly addressed in this episode or you just want to hear a little bit more about um, leave it in the Q&A I'm gonna open up the Q&A for the most part this week just to let you guys leave me those kind of messages and please take advantage of it because it really does help me know how to best do this show in a way that is going to be involve you for one thing and interest you and be something that you genuinely get something out of because I don't want to just sit up here and ramble behind a mic for an hour and you have nothing at the end of it because it was just so confusing so Please don't hesitate to put something in the Q&A and let me know if there's anything that we talked about today that didn't really hit for you, didn't land. There was, you know, I said this or I said that and it didn't all come together. Please let me know that. I did my best to try to make this as linear as possible while not giving everything away, you know, right off the jump. There is so much to this case, guys. Like... I literally researched this for two weeks. Um, I wrote for almost as long, and there was just so much that I still didn't have time and, and didn't feel that I could tie into everything else and make it make sense that I had to leave out of this. But this story goes very deep, and it has very far-reaching implications. 
I think that I did the best that I could to indicate um, some reasoning behind why some of this may have happened, uh, at least to point you in the direction and to kind of highlight uh, how those goals were achieved. But there's so much. Um, McVeigh with the neo-Nazi groups and stuff that, that I touched on and his involvement with that and that Andreas Strassmeyer guy, um, that alone could be an episode, I'm telling you. I found so much crazy stuff about that. but. I just didn't want to get too sidetracked from the main narrative and there were several witnesses that saw you know a, a group of people at that campground where they allegedly put the bomb together there were other accounts uh, about the the major and another guy named poindexter you know of course these are all just uh, like cia you know pseudonyms or whatever um but and other people being involved in actually constructing the bombs and which I can tell you unequivocally that there were more than one bomb that did that damage and if there was more than one bomb therefore there were more people involved than just McVeigh and Nichols um, those guys might have been able to put together a small bomb I don't think that they had the technical know-how to seriously put together even one of the info bombs though and, and even if they did one info bomb have you guys i mean look at the cover art for this episode look at the destruction of that building and you can't even tell it blew off the entire north face of it um crushing like you know deep into that building it did way more damage than would ever be possible with a single bomb of the nature that we're told it was it's mind-boggling they do this time after time and then we're just supposed to gobble it up and i hope that through all of these episodes from the prelude through today i've done my job in illustrating how official narratives are to always be questioned I'm not saying to never believe them. I'm not saying sometimes they're the truth. You know, I'm, I'm just saying that you should always question and always stay curious, okay? I just wanted to get that in real quick. And that's gonna do it for this episode. I wanna thank you once again for joining me on this journey through the story of the Oklahoma City bombing and for tuning in to one more episode. Your continued support means the world to me, guys and I genuinely can't thank you enough for it. Be sure to check out the Q&A and poll on Spotify, all that good stuff, the Facebook or True Social pages, and join me tonight at 10 p.m. Central Time every Wednesday for a live chat in our community Discord. It's totally free. I just wanted to create a space for curious minds to come together and speak freely because I love you guys, and I'll talk to you again real soon on the next Clandestine Radio. Thank you.